that was my inner set point always at a high anxiety level. And so to exist in life where that is no anxiety comes along for me, like it does for anyone, but now it's no longer just the baseline. Now it's like, no, that's anxiety. And that happens. It's no longer my whole life. You're a high achiever on paper and through the eyes of others. You've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. Listeners, this is a beautiful episode. It's kind, gentle, forgiving, curious, and it's packed with brilliant, reflective insight. My guest is Jacob Nordby. Jacob's work centers around the powerful connection between healing and creativity and he's authored several influential books on this subject. Jacob has collaborated with esteemed authors such as Anne Lamott, Julia Cameron, Sark, and more. For me, Jacob's book, Blessed Are the Weird, is not only a stunning work of genius, it's a gorgeous, truthful, inspiring invitation to be unapologetically free. My hope for you, listener, is that you give yourself time and space for this episode. It feels like a gift, and it's all right here, right now, in the Trauma Hiders Club. Jacob, here we are. I feel like I'm meeting a superstar. Well, I'm not sure what to say about that, but I really (laughs) am glad to be here. No, I love the title of your show. I love chatting with you a bit about your own history. And yeah, I feel like what you're doing here is so important. You know, even people who have been doing some work, some therapy work, or have shared with their close friends, I think that it's so hard to come all the way out, even to ourselves, um, mm-hmm. with the things that that harmed us earlier. So I just feel like this is really important work, Karen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It really is. It's thank you for acknowledging that. It's it this the podcast is brave and courageous and gut punching and can be agonizing and also fucking hilarious. So it's sort of like like the spectrum of trauma. <laughs> it's not even sort of like- I love the most about people who've experienced a lot of trauma is we tend to um we tend to have the darkest and also most active senses of humor. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I've seen a meme something like Oh, uh, you know, you think I'm really funny? Thanks, trauma. Here's why. Yeah. And it's like this picture of just just like fucking dumpster fire. Um, yeah. Here it is. This is what I have to uh, yeah, attribute that to. So Jacob sent me, listeners, Jacob sent me his book, Blessed Are the Weird. 
a manifesto for creatives. That was the first book I received from Jacob. And lots of people send me their books. And with all due respect to former guests who have sent me their books, I read them. Sometimes I skim them. And I have this expectation that that's what's going to happen when I receive a book is that I'm going to be like, okay, this person is a guest. I'm interested in what they're doing. We've already agreed this is going to be awesome. I'm going to skim. I'm going to read their book and it. I might turn to skimming. Mm-hmm. And I got this book. Is it blessed or the weird or blessed are the weird? Uh, blessed. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So um, maybe it's the Jew in me who went to blessed or the weird. <laughs> Because blessed is just not a word I use, but I'm sure we use that in prayer, blessed. So it's, yeah, it's kind of old-fashioned saying it that yeah. way, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Whatever. It's your intention. So I thought, okay, here's another book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start reading it, and I might skim it, and that's okay too. And I read it in an afternoon. I don't know if you remember this, Jacob, but I sent you a picture <laughs> of the book. <laughs> And it was over the Gulf of Mexico. I did want to include that beautiful water. <laughs> um, and I sent you a, an email with that picture attached. And I wrote, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and what really blew my mind was that here is a modern day someone who's accessible, reached out to me, sent me this book. And... I don't know that in recent history, I have felt such a connection and such a, um, not only such a connection, but like I felt almost busted in a way. I don't mean broken apart, busted in the way like, oh shit, Jacob somehow is onto me and sees me. There was so much that you wrote and I, I mean, I'm not even letting you talk because um, I want to talk all about how, (laughs) how just like even in the introduction, talking about weird people, I have always felt weird. In fact, when I told my mother that I was at 21, I told my parents that I had been molested at 10. And my mother said, I always thought you were just a weird kid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, just this closing line of the introduction. Now it's time to meet the heretics, the rebel magicians, the reluctant heroes, and everyone else in the creative tribe to which you can give yourself permission to belong if you choose. My purpose in telling their stories and bits of mine is to hold up a mirror, fuck yes, in which you can meet the gaze of your own genius self and witness the longing in your soul's eyes to express itself with all the color and passion and rebel pleasure that is your truest nature. Holy shit, what an invitation. Thank you for that. I have so many questions, but here's my first. How did you get here to this, to this book? <laughs> Probably a lot <clears throat> like most of your listeners and maybe you too, Karen, got here today. You know, um, I think the soil that, that we're raised in, the environment, you know, that becomes what creates those neural pathways and beliefs, you know, and it sounds fancy to say neural pathways. Mm-hmm. What we call it later in life is weird ticks and survival strategies and <laughs> coping mechanisms, right? Um, yeah, I think that throughout my life, I felt very much other. And um, I didn't endure this type of trauma you've shared with me about yourself, but I endured many of the other ones, the capital T's. And so I have so much 
heart for everyone who has experienced, especially in their formative years, things that shaped them and the way they saw the world and the way they saw themselves. Mm -hmm. And not, I'm saying they, I'm, I'm going to say ourselves because I, mm -hmm. I so deeply understand it, having lived through my versions of it. And I really felt like I was probably just broken is the mm -hmm. truth, you know? And I went through my childhood and um, young adult life working so desperately to find a way to match the others, <clears throat> those who, who, who appeared so confident and capable of just navigating what seemed like effortlessly, you know, in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I suspected that I had lots of gifts to share, Karen. And I'm saying that right now. So everyone listening, if you hear this and go, yeah, me too, then I want you to really listen to this because I felt like I had lots of gifts to share, but it felt so confusing to know even where to begin to find them. And then where to begin, even begin to begin to share them with a world that seems to me, seemed then and, and seems even more so to me now, to be really designed for people who are already self-confident, who already believe in themselves, right? So we know that our time offers an on-ramp to what's considered fame or success, that if you have confidence in yourself, you can just hit the gas pedal and become a billionaire or become a YouTube star or become a TikTok, whatever it is. Um, and so we have so much evidence out there of this is what's possible. And so many of us who have tremendous talent and intelligence and have actually gone deeper in life than most of our peers because we were forced to. Uh, we were forced to go inward and ask what happened and is there a way to repair or heal this so that I can actually just sort of live, you know? So that process, I'm not giving you any details right now. I'm happy to dig into that, but that, that process is what brought me to eventually be driving down the freeway in Austin, Texas and have this have this flash happen of blessed are the weird people, mm -hmm. the poets. The, and when I had that, I pulled over and found a um, torn open envelope of a bill on my seat and wrote it down as fast as I could. And mm -hmm. all I knew is it felt true to me. It's like, oh, what if we aren't just weird, twisted, knotted up? What if I'm, what if I actually belong here? What if I what if my experience of life and what I've lived through and what I've healed from, what I've overcome, what I've learned could be shared and actually have value? So that's mm. where it that's where it came from. I love that. Would you say that you wrote this book for you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In fact, that was one of the greater struggles. Karen, I had a publisher, I was actually working for a publisher and the publisher saw that little blessed are the weird piece. And then the poem that came from it and saw that it just went completely viral, like way more than anything I expected. And so he said, Hey, would you, you know, I said, I think I want to write a book about this. And, and he's like, great. And, you know, so I had a book deal, you know, my previous book I had published indie. And then I began to realize going through the process of draft after draft, trying to write it for other people. Mm. My inner guides said, you you have to do this. You can't put this under the pressure that traditional publishing will subject it to. You have to do this for yourself yeah. and trust that even though it's not going to come out as a polished, traditionally published book, it's going, it's going to come out from you. And so I actually canceled the contract and my publisher is, you know, friend. And he was like, I, I get it. That's fine. But I published this one indie because I knew that it had to come out the way it asked to come out, not yeah. according. So it could be like, this is going to help other people. It really had to come out as, you know, this is going to sound maybe a little corny, but it came out as a song of my own soul. Oh, it doesn't sound corny. It, it's so evident in the book and, and 
What I love about that is talk about pathway. There's a pathway for your healing, right? In the writing of it mm-hmm. and in the knowledge that it it exists forever. Mm-hmm. Not in a way that's like famous, but that healing path exists forever. And even if one person picked it up mm-hmm. and said, whoa, like I did, holy shit, this is my book, right? This is me. You did that. And you didn't have to do it with the bullshit. Well, whatever, whatever somebody's goal is, maybe their goal is to be, you know, Oprah or what, or to be Oprah. But you did that for you in, in a pure and beautiful way. I love that. The poem is in the book, right? Yeah. You want to, will you read it to us? I will. It's been a long time since I've read this. And when I do it, I often get emotional. So if that happens, then we'll just trust it. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Club. (laughs) I know. One thing I love so much about, you know, your, this community you're speaking to, you're developing is, is how much emotion we carry around in us and how little of a brush it often takes if it feels as if we're safe, if we're being seen and heard to just have that emotion spill over, you know, mm-hmm. and that can feel so inconvenient at times. I know that. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is the Beatitudes for the weird. It's the expanded first part. Blessed are the weird people, poets, misfits, writers, mystics, heretics, painters, and troubadours, for they teach us to see the world through different eyes. Blessed are those who embrace the intensity of life's pain and pleasure, for they shall be rewarded with uncommon ecstasy. Blessed are ye who see beauty and ugliness, for you shall transform our vision of how the world might be. Blessed are the bold and whimsical, for their imagination shatters ancient boundaries of fear for us all. Blessed are ye who are mocked for unbridled expression of love in all its forms, because because your kind of crazy is exactly that freedom for which the world is unconsciously begging. Blessed are those who have endured breaking by life, for they are the resplendent cracks through which the light shines. It's that last one, that last part. I mean, the whole thing is stunning. Yeah. Did you ever see that? Did you ever see that sculpture of a woman? I think it's in France, and she's the sculpt. The statue has clearly been broken, but then put back together with with light, with glass, mm-hmm. and then they shine a light through it, and there's just this radiance coming through all these broken places. You've seen that one, yes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a beautiful image that yeah. is. Yeah. Ooh, now I want that. <laughs> I want to see that right. What a great reminder too. Well, I use that one in in prompts with writing groups, you know, mm. like look at this image, let yourself really take it in and then write from that place. And people, when they get that, it's it's an emotional threshold. Yeah. They cross into something and they begin to realize, oh my God, you know, and that the Japanese art of mm-hmm. repairing a vessel. I know we all those of us in 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 this kind of community, we we understand that so deeply, you know. Yes. And to to imagine even that the ways we were broken and put back together are part of, in some way, part of the value we are in this world, you know. And I'm very careful about saying that because I know that that can be, um, it can be glib or it can be self helpy. It can be a lot of things and. Yeah. It's not as if any of us would would want to go back and relive those things. And some of us are forced to then as we are healing it, as we are going back and 
finding out the roots of what happened, you know, and then finding the value. But it's not as if we would ever go and say, oh, yes, that was part of this grand design that look at me now. I mean, it's beautiful to come to a place of understanding that it's part of who we are. But I don't think any of us would say, oh, yeah, I would totally do that again. You know? Right. The Yeah. Yeah. We don't. Uh, what hurts you makes you stronger. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> Fuck that shit. Yeah. Fuck that shit. Also, like you're, you know, the whole bullshit about you're so resilient. Look how resilient you are. <laughs> I, I, I will cut a bitch. <laughs> right. Yeah. How many times were you told as a child, you're you're so mature, you're such an old soul? Yeah. yeah? There's, a, there's a wisdom in you. You should <laughs> always, you, what you should do when you grow up is help people. Mm-hmm. How do you know these things? You should, I wanted to be Bob Newhart. I did. I wanted to be Bob Newhart because um, he was funny and he was a therapist. And well, there were two things I wanted to be, um, Bob Newhart and a writer. And I remember my parents were having a dinner party and, you know, maybe I came down in my pajamas to like say goodnight or whatever kids do in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s when their parents were having their little cocktail parties. And someone asked me what I want to be when I grow up. And I said, I want to be Bob Newhart Mm. and I want to be a writer. And I remember how funny and somebody said, like, Bob Newhart why do you want to be Bob Newhart? And I said, cause he's, he helps people and he's really funny. <laughs> and I was told I can't be Bob Newhart. And then someone said, well, why do you want to be a writer? I said, cause I really like books. And it was my mom. My mom said, you can't be a writer. It's really lonely. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't be either of those things. I did. Yeah. So instead I was a uh, navigator from 10 years on. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was the steward of my own life in a living a dual life. Um, yeah. What was, the know, dual, what was the dual life? Yeah. The, well, the dual life being the life that I wanted people to see mm-hmm. and the internal life that I was living. I mean, it, it was one life, I suppose, um, but felt very dual. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like on the outside that I was a liar, an imposter, um, a try harder. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's interesting because I, ha- I was in touch, like actually these things are happening. Like you're creating these things. Mm-hmm. They're real. Um, but it was the internal voices of brokenness and unlovability and unworthiness um, and untrust. Like I Self-trust was like a big issue for me. Yeah. So so I couldn't trust the outside me and I couldn't trust the inside me. Right. I didn't want to trust the inside voices that were saying that, like, dude, you're totally fucked. No, you can't do that thing hmm. that you're doing on the outside. So yeah, that was the dual life. Yeah. What made you ask that question? I just wanted to hear what it was about. And I think it's mm-hmm. so I'm sure you've shared this with you with your listeners a lot of times over the time you've been doing this show, but um, I think it's really good to keep hearing it because mm-hmm. I think so often <laughs> we can read or watch or listen to things and go, oh my God, that person actually does, they've actually been there. But there's a part even deeper than all of that that says, yeah, but they're still not as broken as I am. Mm-hmm. 
you know, mm. yeah, they've been there, but they still, they still don't see the actual dysfunction, the actual brokenness in here that I is very private to be, you know, this is yeah. my own very own. It's almost like Gollum's treasure. It's like, this is my precious. Yeah. And even though it's, it's painful and, and heavy, it still is like, yeah, but nobody knows the actual depth of this, you know? And so I think hearing it and hearing it in various ways of telling that story can, can eventually erode that sense of, of isolation because Karen, mm -hmm. isn't that really what it's, what it is? Like we feel so isolated in this tiny part of the story that's like, yeah, but this is the proof that I don't belong here, that yeah. I can't have the yeah. life that I want, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was writing this morning um, about, I'm kind of writing in between grief and trauma, but separately. And today I, I don't have a rule that they have to be separate. It's just, I started a book about trauma. Mm-hmm based on the Trauma Hiders Club and based on my spewing on paper. And after my mom died, I started putting together in a different way thoughts about grief. And I just saw those as two different potential books or whatever it is I'm doing with them. And this morning I started writing about like what I want <laughs> and not necessarily like what do I want with this life, but like what in my grief, what do I want? Mm -hmm. And it was all very, it had nothing to do with anybody else. Mm -hmm. Like, I want the earth to remind me that when when I'm tripping over myself, because I, I've never done this before, that, mm -hmm. that there's solid ground. Mm -hmm. And I want, like, the sky to remind me that, I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. And I want like water that flows with purpose to remind me that it's all like a path and a journey. Yeah. And it's all mine, right? Like it's mine to nobody else's path. And I want to remember that I am home. Mm -hmm. And what really struck me was like, I've actually known that since I was 10, that I am home. Not, I don't mean that I am home in a place. I am home me, my mm -hmm. vessel, I am home. And so this was a moment in my writing where it was like, oh, right, my <laughs> trauma, Karen, <laughs> and grief, Karen, are actually the same person. Huh? Imagine that. Yeah. So maybe I was the last to know. But <laughs> yeah, it was that, it, you know, if we go back to the all of who we are and all of our experiences come through, that what I knew at 10 was, or what I told myself was, I'm going to navigate this life because I can't speak about what happened. I don't even know how to speak about what happened to me. And I, I'm not allowed to tell anyone they'll get murdered. Mm -hmm. So it's just me. It's just me. Mm -hmm. I am home. And in a, but in a, in my almost 60 year old way, I am home is a different home. Yeah. I wish we could poll your listeners right now and, and find out how many, of us have struggled for a sense of home all of our lives. Right. Um, I had the actual experience of moving constantly as a child. And <clears throat> I didn't realize as a child that uh, we, we were low key evicted from a lot of houses. It wasn't mm -hmm. as, you know, that the sheriff didn't come and throw the couch on the front lawn, but, but we, we had to move quickly often. And 
my mother was really so good at framing life as an adventure. And so she actually created a sense of home in all of these different places we lived in. And I, I love her for that, you know, mm -hmm. but it took me a long time as an adult to look back and go, oh, that that contributed. That wasn't the only thing because I don't feel like that by itself. There are plenty of nomadic peoples who to this day move around constantly. And that's not a traumatic experience for them. That's just part of life, you know. So that by itself isn't empirically the definition of trauma, but it did contribute to this sense of don't get too attached to any of this stuff because it's going to go. And that included friends in the neighborhood or, you know, furniture or whatever it was. It was like, no, all this stuff's going to go. Um, but more so it was a sense of what was going on in my internal world. It's like, yeah, I don't have a home in this world. In fact, writing Blessed Are the Weird, that was that was part of this experience, Karen, of, of learning that I wasn't alone when I put it out there. And then so many people have had similar reaction as you have. Um, I was amazed. It's like, I thought some part of me believed I was really the only one, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so having that sense of recognition has helped to dissolve a bit. And, you know, I work with writers, I work with creatives, and I try to invite everyone into a sense of, hey, I actually am a creative being here, whether I write or paint or not, um, any of the classical things. But I work with writers a lot. And I suspect that a large percentage of your listeners feel that in some way they have a book in them. And I don't ever try to talk people into writing a book because it's a crazy fucking insane experience. <laughs> but, but I will say this, there's okay. I want to tell you this. So there's a there's a tribe in Africa that an anthropologist went and observed some of their rituals, and he noticed that there was this ritual of when someone would endure some kind of a traumatic experience, whether it was a baby fell in the river and died, or you know someone got hurt in battle, the whole tribe would would gather around, and this person would to stand in the center of this circle and to tell their story and act it out with as much emotion and like. Yeah, like really embody this is what happened to me. And there was no time limit. They just they just did it until they were done. They hold hmm. they, they told the whole story. And that was remarkable. At the end of that, the tribe was not to do anything but acknowledge them, maybe a touch on the shoulder or an embrace or a eye contact, but that was the only thing. There was no fixing, no coaching, no fixing. Hmm. And that's remarkable in itself. But what happened? the anthropologist was amazed by is they did that three times. So they would then gather a week later and do it again. Same thing with as much emotion as possible. And then the third time with as much emotion as possible, what he said was amazing though, was to watch when this person went through that for the third time, they actually integrated the trauma, the experience and the grief. And they had, they were being witnessed in an unconditionally positive way. And they felt the support and they also didn't have to trim the amount of time or space they were taking up. They were given that time to actually feel it and act it out and express it and then be loved and supported back. And that's one thing I've noticed, Karen, in our modern society, we don't have that. Even with our closest friends, those of us who experienced a lot of trauma in our formative years are often hypervigilant to, mm -hmm. not, to, to not take up very much space. It's also what happens when we when we do find somebody who really feels safe as we go into we can go into trauma dumping. It's like, oh my God, blah, here's the whole thing. And that can feel then we can have a vulnerability hangover and experience shame and go, I'm never doing that again. And so even even in spaces and even with therapists and things like that, which is such a positive overall venture, even there we often hide. Um and so 
I'm sharing this to say, if you have a book in you, what helped me so much was to get the advice. I think it was Stephen King or one of those uh, might've been Anne Lamott in Bird by Bird. Tell the Mm -hmm. story to yourself. Tell the story to yourself first. And I think a lot of us who have been through transformative and previously traumatic experiences, we feel like we've already done the work to where we want to just hand it to the world then and say, look, this happened, but then also here's how to fix it. Here's how to heal it. And that actually shortcuts the process. We need to go back and pretend we're in that African tribe where we're able to tell the entire story. Because what happens with that, Karen, is we begin to integrate it. And by the third session, the anthropologist noticed by the third session, this person was, they weren't excusing the other forces of nature or human victimizers. They weren't excusing them, but they were seeing it all from a different standpoint. They were also noticing their own part in it and not saying, yes, it was my fault, but they're like, oh no, I, you know, I wasn't very smart. I did wander off into the jungle and got myself in a situation where, and again, I'm very careful saying that because we, we don't want any of us to take it back on ourselves, the guilt or the shame for what happened. But there is, there is a process of integration and what comes from that draft two, draft three, draft Mm -hmm. four, what comes from that then is pure gold, is actual medicine that we're handing to the world. And all of this reminds me a lot of Viktor Frankl's process that he developed, you know, logotherapy. And he had a very similar experience, just watching the power of people telling their story over and over Mm -hmm. and over again until eventually the poison went out of it. And what was left was medicine. What was Mm -hmm. left was something that could be used for healing. Yeah, I love that. And writing about grief in particular, I started writing, I actually started writing. My my mom had dementia and other complications and it was in her, I think, like I've been writing about that through the years, but in the mm-hmm. last three weeks of her life, like once she, once it was clear and I actually said out loud, um, we're choosing hospice over any, any intervention, mm-hmm. uh, that I knew at some point that would be a choice mm-hmm. and to, to actually like speak it, speak it into the world and say like, hold on doctors who are recommending moving my mother and she needs mm-hmm. to see a cardiologist and a neurologist, whatever the hell they were suggesting. And to like say it into the world. No, we're not going to do that. We, we no interventions here. Like there's no, there's no purpose for that. Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. And acknowledging that her body is clearly shutting down. Um, the words came out of my mouth and the doctor who was really lovely, he said, tell me what you're saying. I mean, I even said, we're going to choose hospice. And so he, he asked me, he said, tell me what you're saying. I said, no intervention. Like we're done. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is telling us it's the end. And so back to why, why I'm sharing that. I started writing about that because there there was a part of me that was like, you need to reconcile this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. you need to do something with this. And there was a part of me that was wanting a guide, a book, a something, mm-hmm. a how to do mm-hmm. this thing called, I've just declared we're ending my mother's life and now there's the every day, what is, you know, I don't know what's going to happen each day. I don't know. I've not lost lost a parent. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the other side of that is going to be. So I started writing my own guide and 
yeah, that's (laughs) kind of been writing it ever since. Yeah. Karen, I have a little invitation. Uh, I love, I love that we're talking about writing and writing healed me. It continues to heal me. And one thing I think a lot of people feel is I healing and creativity often exist in different sort of silos for people They go, I'm going to, I'm on a healing journey right now. When I get healed enough, then I'll start creating and, or they just see them as very, very different practices. You know, I have a friend here in town who's a therapist and a, and a veteran, and he works a lot with veterans and creating sculptures. He uses clay a lot. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love how in, intelligent he is with the whole process. We were having coffee recently and talking about these things. And I was talking about that, the connection of mm-hmm. healing and creativity and why it's so important. And he's like, yes, I, I watch people who they say I'm not creative, but when they sit down in front of a a pile of clay, they start working with it. And he's like, then he's like, if I'm sitting near, they might start telling part of a story they've never told to anyone ever before, or they might not have even had that memory before. He's like, there's something about the process of creating something, making something that is so powerful. And so one thing I love to invite all of us into is say, what if I heal to create? And what if I create to heal? What if Mm -hmm. both things can happen at the same time? And the process of it can actually begin to pull logs out of the jam, the dam that we have so much passion and pain and genius and intelligence and love and grief. And what if all of those things, what if we don't have to sort them out from each other? What if all mm-hmm. of them become part of this thing? And a lot of people say, yeah, that's that sounds wonderful. How do I do it? And one thing I love is to use writing, even for people who say I'm not a writer, as as a modality in itself, I just got back from journaling just before we sat down to do this session together. And I use that every morning. Um, and I use a very simple practice. So I started out with the artist's way with morning pages. Mm-hmm. Um, been really just some days I pinch myself to go, Julia Cameron and I are actual friends. She'll call me up at night and we'll chat, you know, like it's just, it's just, it's mind blowing, you know, and she'll tell me anyway, it's just, it's an amazing friendship and I've appreciated it so much. And then over the years I read writing down your soul by Janet Connors. And that actually helped shift my experience of morning pages into a more intimate conversation with myself and the universe. And so I want to invite everyone to use that little practice, which by the way, Julia Cameron has reviewed and, and agrees that it can be done along with morning pages. You know, this isn't a separate thing. You'd use this in morning pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it's three questions and I, I give away a program. It's creativeselfjournal.com and no charge at all. Please go use it and download it. But there are three questions and I use it every day. And this helps me ground. It helps me acknowledge what's going on inside. And it also helps me then to begin to create a vision for what I would love. And the first question is, how do I feel right now? Those of us who in, endured a lot of trauma in our formative years, often we we got the message internalized, how I feel doesn't matter. Yep. Um, and even those, even those listening who didn't experience capital T traumas, you still got that message. That's the message we get from society, from our educational process, from everything. We get the, we get the message, how I feel doesn't matter. So if I just sit there and write honestly for two or three minutes, oh, I'm feeling a little tired right now. I'm feeling a little anxious. I'm getting ready to go on a podcast and my mind isn't very clear, you know, whatever it is. Uh, second question is, what do I need right now? Often again, many of us taught, we're taught to disassociate. So we bounce off into some other place. We're not in touch with our bodies. It's funny to me sometimes to, to write that question in my journal. What do I need right now? And the first thing that comes back is I need to pee or mm. I need a nap 
or I need a drink of water. It's like we actually using that question actually puts us back in touch with the wisdom of our bodies, mm-hmm. uh, of our intuition, of paying attention to our actual selves. And then the third question is, um, what would I love? Now, I use this differently sometimes when I'm going through a lot of emotional difficulty or facing something that's causing a lot of anxiety. Sometimes I'll use the question and say, how would I love to feel right now? And that by itself can help. It's like, oh, what I would, how I'd love to feel is confident or happy or whatever it is. And so just even shifting my imagination just slightly toward what would I love or how would I love to feel? Sometimes it's difficult for trauma survivors to cast a vision of the future. They go, all this manifestation stuff, it sounds great. But every time I sit down to imagine anything, it's just like a thunderstorm rolled in. And all I see is the dark, the rejection, the pain, the, the fear of failure, all of these things. And so I'm very gentle with those of us who had our imaginations darkened at a very early age, because we actually got conditioned to use our imagination rather than to create a life that feels good and is full and we have enough and we are enough. We are actually hypervigilantly imagining all of the things that can hurt us or the ways we have been hurt. And so healing the imagination so it becomes our most powerful ally in creating a life that we would love and that works, that takes time and it takes gentleness. So mm-hmm. um, I want to invite you, whether you're a writer or don't consider yourself that at all, I want to invite you to use the act of writing to open this up within yourself, create some more safety, create some more dialogue with your inner self. And what you find over the course of a few months or a year is that a little bit at a time, anxiety goes away a little bit, at a, not all of it. This isn't a cure all, but it's, it's this help. It's this helper to be able to even witness ourselves and go, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that's how you're feeling. I've, I've come to treat my inner self almost like a very intelligent, curious little toddler. It's like, come here. I love you. I'm curious about the things you're curious about. You don't have to rush right now. I want to hear you. I want to, I want to know what you think, you know, and that level of positive attention given to ourselves. And you're a, you're in the helping professions. You know how powerful this is with people, even a little bit at a time, 10 minutes a day can really begin to change that sense of isolation and of anxiety and of, I am all alone in this universe Mm -hmm. in a dark little corner that no one will ever find me in, you know? Mm, So nice. I'll be totally honest with you. Mm. I had a little panic moment when you were (laughs) when you were um, sharing the three questions. So, and, and people who listen to trauma hiders club will know this. Yeah. Identifying feelings is really difficult. So the question of how do I feel? I remember when I went to my first big coaching intensive, there was something, I don't know what it was. How are you feeling right now? Or whatever it was. And I remember my mind was fucking blown at the inventory of responses. Mm. And I thought, though none of those words, none of the words, let alone how they actually feel, none of those words are available to me. Yeah. Like I don't even know those words. Yeah. And um, so something that I often say on this show is I want someone, and maybe it'll be me one day, to mm-hmm. create like a periodic chart of emotions. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of charts of emotions, but one that can hover above another person's head. Mm-hmm. Not so that I know their emotions, but that so that I can see the chart mm-hmm. and I can choose to be more clear and open and 
connected to what I actually am feeling. Mm-hmm. Because it's for me, that is among my top practices is to go deeper with not only identifying a name, but then where does it land in my body? What is the sensation, the whole somatic experience around it? Um, For me, it's almost like somebody's daily workout. Mm -hmm. Somatic experiencing is my daily workout. I I don't, I'm not very practiced at it. (laughs) So I had this moment when, how do you want to feel or how do you feel? And I imagine like getting stuck in that even with my commitment of, which doesn't mean I would never play. What I'm saying is what a, it's such a great question. It's, it's a, it's a deep invitation for those of us who, and maybe that's all of us who weren't allowed to feel. Yeah. And maybe even a deeper question for those of us who absolutely would not allow ourselves to feel, even if we were told we're not allowed to feel, but wouldn't allow ourselves to feel because what might happen is Mm -hmm. like, what if I let rage actually live? Aaron, I love that you're bringing this up. I've had more than one client, but I'm thinking of one in particular who began to do this work. She came to me for creative coaching, creative guidance. I don't really call my work coaching, um, creative guidance. And she said, if I, if I, if I open this at all, if I even look in that direction, it, she said, the visual I have is of a nuclear bomb going off that will destroy the whole world. That's how powerful it feels. And she's like, I'm actually afraid to even touch it for that reason. And we, we did some work together on that and really spent time with it. And what she decided would feel safe would be to go into her closet shut the door, wrap herself in a blanket with a little light or a candle and begin to do her writing there because she said, I can agree that inside of that space, anything that explodes won't hurt the rest of the world. Mm. Loved that intelligence that mm-hmm. she she knew that she had to create some sim- symbolic experience that could reassure the parts of her that were absolutely certain that if she, if that dam broke, it would, it would kill everyone around. And mm-hmm. that sounds to people who haven't experienced that that sounds so dramatic and i completely relate to that like no i have to hold this in or to the title of your show i have to hide it because to do otherwise would not just endanger me like i'm tough i've lived through this it would probably hurt everyone else around me you know right 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 that belief i believe stops Mm -hmm. us from doing the work truly yeah 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 absolutely that for me that was the story like well, hold on, you know, and I had lots of, did lots of therapy, lots of shitty therapy, um, also mm-hmm. lots of great therapy, but the there was this one piece I felt, and I've said it before on the show many times, but I felt like I was carrying around a, I don't know, 190 pound man on my back. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, having dug deep into the trauma, I was yeah. not uncoupled from my abuser. Mm-hmm. Well, into my marriage and everything. And um, my biggest fear was that if I really mm-hmm. dug in, really, really dug in and like re-experienced or told the story in detail or whatever it would take, I, didn't, I just imagined it would take all sorts of revealing, revisiting, that yeah. I would be shattered in a million pieces. And 
that was first. I mean, the rage was another thing, but I would be shattered in a million pieces. I might yeah. not be able to be put back together. I would be unrecognizable, right? Mm-hmm. So the person that my husband loved and the mother that my children have would, nobody would be able to relate to me. And right. it would be true that I am fucking weird. Right. So, right. Yeah. 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 So it held me back. That held me back for a long time. Well, I said, I'm, fuck it. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen the polyvagal chart, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that's become, I've tattooed that on virtually on the inside of my skull. And it really helps me all day long to just notice where I am on that scale. Yeah. I have a therapist friend who does a lot of EMDR work with mm-hmm. people and that's become one of his primary more that modalities in the last year or so he's actually um, partnered up with a clinic. So he does therapy assisted ketamine treatments and oh, cool. watching some of watching some of that is like miraculous with what can happen with people. But one day we were talking about how it's so difficult for people who've experienced extreme trauma to ever come out of that disassociated numb freeze state and get down into that ventral vagal zone where that's the green zone, you know, that's the holy grail of self-help and spirituality and therapy. It's like, if you can just get all the way into that green zone, you know, which, which exists at the ground of our being. And by the way, it exists in all of us, no matter how much trauma we've had and anything, but he's like, here's the problem, Jacob, you go, you go up the arousal scale right to the edge of fight or flight where it pops over into freeze. He's like the the emotions and bodily sensations we're experiencing when we're at the top of fight or flight are so intense, so terrifying. He's like, that's right before our bodies and brains shut down and say, there's nothing I can do about this. I just have to experience it. He's like, the trouble is if a person has been in freeze state for a really long time, walking them back through the top parts of fight or flight can be so traumatizing in itself. It's Mm -hmm. like, I have to feel those extreme experiences again uh, and sensations. And so why would I do that? And so he said, I have to, it's like, it's almost like feeding a squirrel in the park. He's like, I have to make, I have to put the peanut close and then back away and let them take two steps and eat the peanut and another one. And he's like, I have to actually coax them and then hold their hand through some of these terrifying experiences that they didn't want to feel at the time. And they don't want to feel again, but coming down through that, he's like, this is why it takes so much patience to move out of being frozen and depressed and isolated and back. He's like, you, we have to walk back through that graveyard at some level. And that by itself is the reason that so many people can't or won't do it. And it's not that they are weak. It's not that they're stupid. It's that the body literally says, fuck, no, we're not going there again. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up and explained it that way. It was in fact, EMDR that I, experience green zone and come out of it often, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just like we all do. My EMDR was like 18 months or more um, of building my resources and the safety around that and, you know, safe beings and safe whatever so that I could walk through. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when I, I, I've shared this before on the show that I imagined I was made up of cement blocks. (laughs) and with each as we really got into the depths um i suppose in in like kind of taking apart the pieces in fight or flight every time i walked out of the session Mm -hmm. i imagined i i thought i actually saw like a cement block 
in the sky with a balloon attached to it. It was just mm-hmm. a lightness and the mm-hmm. sky was bluer or grayer, whatever it was supposed to, just everything yeah. was so clear and continues to be to this day. Like, what a, how fucking amazing is that, right? <laughs> and I, I say like, every, like, why are we not doing EMDR? The, you know, I understand that there's a readiness that has to happen, sure. but if yeah. I could gift the world of significant trauma, mm. EMDR, shit, mm-hmm. like years would be saved and right. not, right? Not like just agonized over. Yeah. There is so much here. And I feel like we need to talk again mm-hmm. and talk more. I love this blending of creativity and experience and healing and all of it. I think there's a lot more to be said Mm -hmm. about that. I'm going to ask you two questions. One, what are you most excited about in your world right now? I might get emotional about that question. Um, You know, my mother, who is now a therapist, after so many years of self-work and healing and everything, went back to school at 60 and she became a therapist. I'm just so impressed by her. Yeah, but she used, she described it as skating on a frozen river. She said, you know, all through my young life, I just figured if I just stay on the surface and skate as fast as I can, I, I don't have to go under the surface and see the, the monsters and the log jams and all the things. She said, one day the river began to thaw and I mm-hmm. eventually fell into the river and had to do the work. And that came to me about age 34, 35. I had a huge shamanic initiation that changed everything. I thought I was going to meditation retreat. It turned out to be a shamanic thing. Um, but that broke everything open, Karen, and began to break everything open. And that was just the very beginning of it. But during that time, I had to let go of everything, my businesses, my house, my credit score, everything. I didn't know who I was at all. And I remember journaling during that time saying, I feel like I've had one of my limbs cut off because I don't have any optimism about life. And that used to be my shield. That was my, I was the most optimistic person in the world. And I didn't know even how to live without feeling excited, without feeling determined uh, toward a big goal. And that's, that lasted for about a decade, honestly. And every time I would get all excited about this next thing, I would just feel this tremendous exhaustion inside. And, and it would be like, I can't do it. Am I permanently broken? Will I ever, will I ever get my mojo back? You know? So I would say the thing I'm most excited about is that I feel at age 50, I just turned 50. Uh, at age 50, I feel younger and stronger and clearer and more genuinely hopeful about my life and what I'm creating than I ever have before. Mm. And that to me is such an amazing experience. And that's led to creating the Heal Plus Create community, um, which we're developing more. And then we're launching a writing room, which is a community for writers with Anne Lamott and Diff- Julia and different ones. And so I could talk about accomplishments that are exciting f- to me or goals, but genuinely, I think the most exciting thing for me is that I actually feel connected to life and feel like I I can create something that matters, you know? Mm, so nice. That's really... That was a long-ass answer to your very simple that was, question. <laughs> that was a long-ass answer and uh, such a beautiful response. I, I listened and I felt what you were saying. Yeah. And I'm only recently do I feel very similar. And I'm about to be 60. Um, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? It is. It is. <laughs> I mean, it feels like a miracle to me. And the other yeah. the other thing was doing the work that really started to go deeper when I read Body Keeps the Score seven years ago mm-hmm. or so. And I started seeing myself in that mirror. And then I started doing some of the practices and the work that he talked about there. And then Deepest Well came along and all these other 
there was a point, Karen, at which I was walking down this river path and something happened where I felt anxiety. And I remember going, oh my God, anxiety is now an event, not just the baseline. And mm. so doing the work over the years and developing a, a strong inner practice and little bit by little bit coming down into the green zone, even for a few minutes a day, having anxiety no, no longer be like, you know, like a fish born in water. So it doesn't even, can't even see the water, of course, like we can't see air. That was my inner set point was always at a high anxiety level. Yeah. And so to, to exist in life where that is no anxiety comes along for me, like it does for anyone, but now it's no longer just the baseline. Now it's like, no, that's anxiety. And that happens. It's no longer my whole life. Yeah, you know, it's, I see you anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> right. right? I love Hello. You. Oh, that's just you. Anxiety. Yeah. My second question is, and final, what's been most helpful for you being here in the Trauma Hiders Club? You know, I I think that your presence is, um, well, you're clearly a pirate and a, and a rebel. And that's a term of endearment for me. No, I think that it's been helpful for me to know that you are here doing this work. It's been helpful for me to know that people who really need it are paying attention. It just, to me, it's like watching one more candle being lit in an otherwise seemingly pretty dark world. So I want to thank you and everyone who listens to you for doing the work and for being afraid and, and being anxious and still doing the work. You're yeah. you're part of what brings the lights back on in the world. Thank you. That's That's beautiful. Well, Jacob, this has been great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being here. And everyone, everyone who's listening to this, it just feels like such an honor to be able to sit with you and just reflect back a little bit. You, you're worthy. You matter. You belong here. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.